Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Let's get uh, going with our learning time together today. This is a great passage of Scripture. We're looking at the book of Mark in the last week of Mark. And I want you kind of to set your heart and mind towards this because these two days, you know, I don't know, 20 hours maybe at the most, this will ring bells. This is a very powerful passage of Scripture as it displays an attribute of God that we could not know otherwise. When we look at this passage of Scripture, we'll have an opportunity to come to three conclusions that are absolutely factual and certain, and they're life-altering. Okay? Yeah, great. Big expectations. So um, let's pray. Let's, let's pray to that end. Lord, I'd, uh, I, I would ask that your spirit that indwells our spirit would open our hearts to uh, the gravity of, of your meekness and the power that you have and the choice that you've used to use that for our good. I'd ask that our hearts would be open to the cl- conclusions that we come to as a result of, of hearing the last few hours of the life of Jesus the Christ and that we would, we would so be consumed by those truths that it would alter the way we believe, the way we think, and the way we act. And it would be all as a reflection of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me propose this to you. That the very purpose, maybe a purpose, but maybe even the purpose of the last hours of Jesus Christ is to demonstrate an attribute of God that could not be known otherwise. In other words, one of the reasons we have the Bible as revelation is you can only get so far in your understanding about the nature of God without him coming in and saying, wait, 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 that's all true, but specifically, this is what I'm really like. And I want to tell you a story. I want to show you what that looks like. This is what the the true God is. That's why we have Bible revelation, is to tell us things that we couldn't know, generally speaking. This passage, these 20 hours or so, that's what's happening. And what we're going to find out here is something about God and that he is meek. We'd never understand God, and we'd never understand meekness if it weren't for this story. Now, what's meekness? Meekness in the Bible, quiet and gentle, not wanting to fight or argue. That's good for Webster, and it might be true, but it's not the Bible definition. The Bible definition of meekness is power under control. Power under control. Because sometimes a person can be meek and they are quiet and don't want to, what, get it, what did I say, did not want to fight or argue is because they'll lose the fight or lose the argument. Power under control says, no, I have power. I'm just choosing not to. Let me illustrate. This is a 2017 Bugatti. Yeah. It is the fastest production car built in the world, and it can be yours for $2.6 million. And it's worth every penny? I don't know. It's got a W16 engine, 8 liter. It comes with four turbochargers. It has 1,500 horsepower. Got an automatic and semiotic paddle shift seven gear transmission. The tires on that car cost $25,000, but you can't mount them in this country. They can only be mounted to the rims in Italy for another $75,000. It goes from zero to 60 in 2.5 seconds. It's top speed, the fastest production car built in the world, 261 miles per hour. And at 200, it's a it's a blast to drive. doesn't shake, rattle, or roll. The tires for $25,000, they are run-flat tires that can, be, that, that can be used at over 150 miles per hour. 
Yeah, okay, now you picture a Bugatti, the 2017 Bugatti in front of you on the way to work in a school zone. All right? And that driver is going 17 miles an hour, and you're in a hurry. And he could be going 20, but he's not. He's going 17. It's not like he's a Prius, and that's as fast as he can go. (laughs) This is a Bugatti. What are you going to do with this? Are you going to honk your horn? Really? You don't honk a horn and say, hurry up, Mr. Bugatti man. He's likely to throw it in neutral and rev that 1,500-horsepower four-quad turbo engine, and just the rattle alone will shake your little Camry, cause it to be afraid. It's going 17 because the driver has chosen to go 17. It can go as fast or as slow as it wants. That car, that driver, it's meek. It's power under control. It's choosing to do that. The Bible is this unique book that says there's some things about God that you could never know otherwise, and this thing about God that you need to know is that he's meek. And meek is power under control, and the more power, the more control, the more meek. That's what we're going to see today. Well, God doesn't have a Bugatti to use as an illustration of his story, and instead he uses a lamb. It is a lamb that he will use to show the power under control, his meekness. It starts about a thousand years before Jesus walks the planet, and it's, the story is that uh, Israel is now a brand new nation, and they are trapped and enslaved by the dominating country known as Egypt. And God uses several plagues to come and try to convince Pharaoh, his very stubborn, proud heart, to let his people go. He won't. And so God, in his tenth plague, sends the plague of justice, the wrath of God's righteousness. His, his sword is unsheathed. And he's coming in, and he will destroy every house. He's not going to pass over the Jewish houses because they're Jewish. Every house will have some kind of night of reckoning on this tenth plague. And Jesus, and I'm sorry, and then God causes a provision for that justice to pass over. And the provision is that he, that every family, if they chose to put their faith in this kind of interesting ritual, they would have a, a lamb an innocent, quiet little lamb come and live with them for a short period of time. And then on that night, they would slaughter that innocent lamb, a lamb to a slaughter, and they would take the blood of that lamb and put it over the doorpost and on the side post of their, of, of their doorframe. And because that innocent lamb had been slaughtered, justice would pass over. It would cover the door. It would cover that house of its sin, right, of its just judgment, and it would pass over them. But every single house in Egypt, regardless of who was living there, faced death, the death of a child or the death of a lamb. And the story goes, that's what exactly what happens. This substitutionary atonement, you know, covering of the lamb's blood, the people were set free. Pharaoh's heart was finally broken, and they were released. And this event, this historical event is known as Passover because the wrath of God and his justice and his power passed over those houses. And, and, and what was able, right, to contain the power of God's wrath? A little lamb. A little lamb could hold it back. And the question is, you know, how? Why would the Jews every year rehearse and reenact this Passover because this little lamb, this 
woolly little thing could harness the power of God's righteousness. The reason is, is because the lamb was pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the lamb, the lamb of God. And that's why in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, joining him in his, in his revival, he says, Behold the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And that's how this story starts. It, the, story is about a, about, the story is about power under control. The story is about the power of meekness. And God is arranged in, like, the fullness of time. So for thousands of years, he's planned for his son to come and visit this ex- experience with us, right, so that his life would end on the very week of Passover because he's the Passover lamb. And he, we could be chosen, and this is the week because he is the Passover man. He is the Passover lamb. And so in Mark chapter 14, where we are in verse 1, it says, uh, in the week leading up to Passover and um, uh, what is it? First fruits is, or uh, bread, whatever. Two days before Passover, right? The, the priests are, are getting ready for Passover, but they want to destroy and kill Jesus. And why would they want to do that? Because Jesus has been teaching for three years, but especially this last week, Jesus has been teaching right at the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And he's coming after them by name, calling them out and taking away their authority and taking away quite literally their money. And when you take away power and money away from powerful rich people, they'll kill you. And that's what they're going to do. But Jesus has an uprising, and so they can't do it during the daytime. So in the, in the back scene behind all of what's, what's going on at night is these religious leaders are planning some sort of kangaroo court to have Jesus killed in a way that they don't get in trouble. Well, all that's happening, Jesus is having a Passover meal, and he's changing it. He's making it mean something it has never meant before. When you lead a Passover meal, there's someone sits at the head of the table, and every part of the meal is symbolic that you know, points you back to the original Passover itself. And so in this case, yeah, he, he took the bread. And the bread, you're supposed to say, this is the bread of the afflictions of our, of our forefathers. Jesus takes that bread and says, look what he says. And when they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, he gave it to them and said, take this, this is my body. What? He's supposed to say, this is the bread of the suffering of our forefathers. And he's saying, no, 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 guys, listen to me. A thousand years of saying this same sentence over and over again, it's changing. This is my body. It's going to be broken for you. I am the Passover meal. Second, I think there's, there's four movements in this meal. And the third one is where they take the, the glass of wine and they're supposed to say, may all the merciful God make us ready for the coming Messiah. May the all-merciful God Prepare us for the coming Messiah. Jesus does not say that. Jesus, again, takes the Passover meal and says this. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he drank it. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which is being poured out for many. This is the blood that's being poured out for many. My blood, this is my blood, and this blood will make a new covenant. It's called the new covenant in a relationship between God and man like we've never seen before. This cup is me. In summary, Jesus is taking the, the Passover meal that's going on for uh, a millennial, and he takes it and says, it's my meal. I'm the lamb who was slaughtered. I'm the lamb. All the lambs up to this point were pointing to me, and my blood will cover the doorpost of your soul so that judgment will pass over. And the only way it will happen is if the lamb will be meek and be led to the slaughter and obey the will of the Father.
That's what Passover is on this night. Now, after Passover, Jesus prepares himself to become the Passover lamb, and that's going to require an excruciating and honest prayer with his father. And so he goes across the valley and goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where it says that he was deeply distressed and troubled, and he prays this prayer. Verse 34, chapter 14. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Then he collapses. He falls to the ground and he prays that if it is possible, the hour might pass from him. He says, Abba, Father, the the most sentimental name for, for for the Father, Daddy. Daddy, Father, everything is possible with you. Take this cup from me. Not yet, not what I will, but what you will. He's, he's crushed under the significance of what it means to be this lamb to the slaughter. Up until this point, it's been, for in some respects, theory, but now it's becoming a reality. He will be separated by the love and the intimacy of his father. And so he prays a contradictory prayer. He's, he's down in the ground, on the ground, and he's, and he's grieving to the point of, of like nausea. And he says, it, Father, is there any way we could just not do this? You can do anything. Is there any way we could not do this? And I will absolutely do your will. Never compromises on doing the will. That was never open for negotiation. Is there any other way to do this? There is not. There's no other way. And so he'll do the will. And once that's been resolved, almost immediately after that, Judas comes with a platoon full of soldiers and gives him what we call, a modern figure of speech, the kiss of death. And in this kits of death, it leads him to the trials of that evening. Now, this is where you're going to see the meekness of God demonstrated majestically. He'll have a religious trial and then two civil trials, and then he'll be sent to his death, beatings, and then the crucifixion. And all this period, the whole point is, this lamb is going to quietly go to slaughter. He's only going to say three sentences the whole time. He won't talk because lambs are meek. He could do things. He chooses not to do things because he is powerful, but he's under control. He's a meek God. He can calm seas. He he has legions of demons that fear him and obey him. He has killed death. Death does what it's told. He has a blessing, and 5,000 men are fed with a few loaves of bread. He does great and powerful things. He will not do those now. And we would never know that if it weren't for this passage. He is calm. He is under control. He is meek. First trial is religious trial. And the problem they're having, and this is at night, they're not supposed to do it at night, but all the religious leaders, the various sects are there, and they're trying to get some people to accuse him of various things so that they can put him to death. They can't get two people to agree on what they have against him. And you need two witnesses to say the same thing. They can't. And so uh, they're trying to get him to indict himself, and they say, the, the, uh, the high priest says, well, Jesus, what do you say about all these accusations? Doesn't say a word. Lamb to slaughter. With that, the high priest is extremely frustrated because it doesn't look like it's going to go their way. And so this is what he asks. Again, the high priest asks him, right, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? This is critical. Are you, are you the Christ, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? Jesus doesn't have to answer this question because it's self-incriminating. It's like he could claim the fifth, right? He, I don't have to answer that question. If he doesn't answer the question, he's done. Go home for the night. We'll try to figure something out later. 
Now he chooses to speak. Now he's going to answer because it is the will of God that he tells the truth which requires him to be slaughtered. And so Jesus does answer in verse 62. He says, I am. And he doesn't leave it there. He says, oh, yeah, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of, the, of power and coming uh, in the clouds from heaven. He, the, the audience there was rattled by this. He says, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm the Son of Man that's coming. Son of Man, that title is in uh, Daniel chapter 7. They know what he's saying. Daniel chapter 7 is about prophecy of future judgment. Coming down in the clouds, is that means the glory of God. I'm coming down to judge heaven and earth. That's Psalm 110. And so <laughs> Jesus says enough so that they understand that he's saying, oh, yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the one Daniel talked about. I'm the one Psalm 110 talked about. And listen, you judge me? I will be the judge of all of mankind. And so he's claiming to be God himself. And so with that, he's saying, you know, they go crazy. They were once, right, uh, having a trial, but now the trial becomes a riot. And, and, and the, the, the high priest tears his robe. Jesus could answer any other question, the question so many different ways, but he says, oh, I'm the judge. I'm the, ju I'm the only judge here, the true judge. He tears his robe. Then they start mocking him. They put a blindfold around his eyes, and then they start spitting on him, punching him, and asking, hey, who's punching you now? Huh? You're the Christ. You're, you're going to judge someday. Judge this. Boom. He does nothing. Do you know why he does nothing? Because he's meek. He's powerful, and he's under control. He's following the will of the Father, and he's displaying something to us that we would never know otherwise, that he will, he will just take these punches because he chooses to. Now the religious leaders are in a bit of a dilemma because they can't inflict the death penalty for blasphemy um, unless they get civil approval. So they take him to Pilate, who happens to be in town. Pilate, you know, here's another question. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes, as you said, second time he speaks. Then they have a bunch of witnesses come in and claim he's doing these various things. What about all those things? Jesus, are those true? doesn't say a word. And Pilate is a bit mesmerized by him. He's not defending himself. Well, again, I think I said that Pilate didn't want much to do with it. There wasn't enough to sentence him to death. And so he realizes, wait a minute, there's somebody higher in authority in town. His name is Herod. And so Pilate sends him to Herod. This is not in Mark. This is in Luke. But I want you to see the reason I bring this up is because this is his second civil trial. And Excuse me. Uh, Herod is notoriously known as the personification of arrogance. When you see him in various movies or paintings, you're going to see him high up on some altar, and there's people uh, uh, or throne, and people around him fanning him, and he's just this pompous, arrogant person that's almost comic. Okay, sometimes they'll cartoon his character because of his hubris, right? And so he's he's and he's Herod has been looking forward to meeting Jesus because he's heard about Jesus and it says he wanted him to do some magic trips for him. I oh maybe you can do like one of your go Jesus okay, can you do one of your signs do one of your little things do hocus pocus, and Jesus remains silent. He won't speak. He won't do anything for Herod. And so Herod starts mocking him. Puts her, oh, he's a king, is he? And so he puts a robe around him, and then they start pushing him around and being a bully to him as well. And, and it says, interesting, that 
that Pilate and Herod were once enemies until this night. And because they had a common enemy that they could mock, they became good friends for the rest of their lives together. Now, this is the climax and the precipice of the meekness of God. This is the story where we have a man in his arrogance above looking down and mocking the creator of all things. God needs Herod to show the power and the depth of his meekness. Whenever I see this, I usually hit pause and I have to go, I have to go for a walk. I, I just want to like just rev the engine. Come on, just show, show them a little bit of what you can do. If you were just to sneeze, no, no, less than that. If you were to just sigh, Jesus, you could cause him to not exist. You could cause his family tree to have never have existed. All you have to do is think the thought, and there was never a Rome period. You want magic? I'll show you magic. I'd love for Jesus to turn him into one of these pocket monkeys. You know, these little finger monkeys. And it's like, yeah, Herod, I've got a little something for you. And just keep him in my pocket. Anytime I need hair, we pat him on the head. That's not what he does. Because God is meek. He lets this happen. He tells this story in great detail. He brings Herod into town so that you and I would know that God is meek. You can't come to this conclusion without what's called specific revelation. You can't know about the power and the depth of the meekness of God unless this happens. You can, you can have the wisdom of Plato and Confucius and even the Buddha, and you'll come to these general understandings about what God is like, about being intelligent and personal. You'll never ever come to this conclusion that he would humble himself before a Herod. He needed Pharaoh to show how powerful he is. He needs Herod to prove how meek he is. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate says, I want nothing to do with this. I'll wash my hands of it. You guys want to crucify him? Knock yourself out. I'm going back to bed. And they do. And that's what happens. The crucifixion is not known for its efficiency. Crucifixion, its purpose is maximum pain and maximum humiliation. The purpose is to make sure everyone gets the message. Don't mess with Rome. If you're a Roman citizen, it'd be illegal for you to even be crucified. It would be unusual punishment. And so they put him in this experience, and I won't go into details because Mark doesn't. What Mark does do when he talks about the crucifixion process, this miserable, painful, ever uh, long-lasting death, is he quotes Psalm 22. Let me read you the psalm that Mark is referring to, the parts that matter uh, for us today. He says, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, and they're shaking their heads. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. This is before crucifixion was invented, by the way. It, it, has, it has melted away within me. Dogs surround me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all of my bones. People stare, and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. That was literally taking place. In the midst of this terrible death, they were playing craps for his leftover clothing. And not just to show this contrast between the callousness of the Roman soldiers that were killing him, but more importantly, to show the people that a thousand years before this happened, Jesus was sent as a lamb to the slaughter to come to this planet on this day to die for our sins. It had to be a lamb. It had to be slaughtered to show God's meekness. 
When I was um, in graduate school, uh, we heard from some missionaries that they were in a country where they were translating the Bible and they'd never seen or heard or no, had no experience with lambs. And so, again, they're translating the Bible and they used a pig instead because that was common to the people. And so they said Jesus was like a pig to the slaughter, led to the slaughter. All the Old Testament passages were related to that. And then the missionaries saw a pig being led to the slaughter. Pigs are proud and they're afraid. And they'll put up a fight, and they'll squeal all the way until they're dead. And so they realized that is not what Jesus is. And the only way they could solve the problem was to import some lamb. <laughs> they brought some sheeps in, and they showed them this is what God is like. This is meekness. And so the people were able to understand who God was because of this. In the last scene in our story, we'll get to some great application in just a few seconds, but in the last story, if you, if you wouldn't mind imagining the people that didn't run from him, the people that were at Golgotha were looking up and a man that's been beaten to pulp, his back is lacerated to the point of beyond recognition. He's hanging on that cross and dying slowly. And as, they, as he slowly dies, with all their hopes, the reason they're living, they're thinking this is the man that could calm a storm. Stop. Stay calm. This is the one that could heal the sick at a distance. This is the king that said he was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of all the promises. He's the one where demons feared and death obeyed him. And people were mocking him, saying to him, you saved others, save yourself. And don't you think, don't you think some of the people that loved him were thinking, yeah, you did save others. Why don't you save yourself? Now, we're stopping here on what's called Good Friday. I don't want to go to Easter. I don't want to tell you how it ends. I want, I want to stop right here in the middle of this and say, what can we learn? Because I want you to know that there are three things we can learn from this story and this attribute of God known as weakness that can absolutely change the way you live. As a matter of fact, I think it's between life and death. It'll change your relationships. It'll change in times of stormy times of life. When you're injured or hurt or misunderstood or, unjust, or tr treated unjustly, you have three anchors to stabilize your life. If you're out at sea and in a storm and the water's not too deep, you throw out three anchors. You throw out one, you still have 360 degrees to get kicked around. You throw in two, then you can be plucked like a piano string. You put in three, you can't move. The waves go over you, and you hold your breath, and you won't move. That's what I'm talking about today. We anchor in these three truths that are not up for debate. These are convictions for life. These are reasoned out. They're not wishful thinking. These are facts, proven facts that aren't, you know, hopeful ideals. This is truth. These three truths. We know them to be true because of this story. One, God loves you. God loves you. What motivated, what motivated this whole story in the first place? Maybe the most famous verse in the New Testament anyway, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. To be clear, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son into the world to save the world through him. What's the motive for meekness? Why would God send his one and only son? It says, see how it's emphasizing his only begotten son? Why? It only makes sense if he loves you. He cannot love you any less. Okay. 
He cannot love you anymore. He cannot stop loving you. And watch this. Romans chapter 8. This is the way Paul puts it. You're going to have to read it out loud with me in just a minute. Here's the first pass. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, now that he's back, right, graciously give us all things? Only a meek God could come up with the solution. But let's say that out loud. I want us to, like, indel that in our hearts. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The whole of the Christian life is responding to the love of God demonstrated through the crucifixion of Jesus. The whole of the Christian life is demonstrated about anchoring yourself. Drop your anchor here. It says, God loves me. Independent of circumstances, situations, emotions, feelings, what anyone says, okay? And then you let it define you. This is how you drop the anchor. You let it define you. You say things like, I'm a fearful person. I'm a critical person. I'm a worrisome person. Uh, you know, right? I'm a controlling person. It's not about you. It's about him. I define myself by being loved by the maker and the creator of the universe, who apparently God loved me so much that he was willing to send his son dressed up like a sheep to be led to the slaughter, to take on meekness for God so loved. It was worth it to him that he would die for me. So just plant that in the ground, and whatever happens to you in the future, don't let that be negotiated. That's true. It's a fact. Second anchor, we drop this one. There is no other way. There was no other way of salvation. Absolutely. And here's how I know that to be a fact, a fact and not a hope. Not a wish, not a kind of a theory, because Jesus prayed to his father, daddy, if there's another way, you can do all things, let this cup pass. And the father says, there is no other way. Sin has to be paid for. There's, the blood has to cover this illness. It can't just go away. And, it, and it's going to take the meekness of God to make this work. Only the meekness of God could, could tell this story. Watch this. Look at the logic. We'll read this out loud again, too. Here's first pass. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died needlessly. I do not set aside the grace of God. If I think it's what God, God's forgiveness through Christ and then add something to it, you know what you're saying? He didn't pay enough. Really? God's only son goes through that ritual slaughter, and that's not enough? What would he have to pay if that's not enough? Or maybe, think of it this way, it wasn't necessary. He was, here's some liberal theology, he was setting an example. Friends, if God sends his one and only son to go through the Good Friday experience, and it's not necessary, you could have intimacy with God with all those good things you're doing. What does that say about the nature of God? I mean, think, he would send his son to go through this? What's he going to do with you? This is his beloved son. And this is just an extra thing. That's not, it is absolutely necessary, and it's the only way is the point. This is absolutely necessary, and it's the only way. Here's why. Because you owe a debt to God. We owe a debt to God that's excessive. 
And Jesus is not a victim of the Father's wrath running up the score. When you look at the details of his crucifixions, the multiple beatings, the humiliation, all that was what we individually deserved. That was what we should get. That's the debt we owe him. That's the cost of sin. It's death, and it's an ugly death. And what we bring to the table, there's two parts of the equation, right? The depth of our sin and the height of our righteousness. God's not, a, he's not all that impressed with our righteousness. I mean, he says several times, but one time he says, uh, your, your righteous deeds are like a filthy, stinking, bloody rag to me. Really? The holiness of God evaporates that. It's the only way that, it's the only way to hide your sin is to cover it with the blood of the innocent Messiah. Let me show you, let me prove to you it was working. Let me prove to you that it was absolute. Let me prove to you that it's done, it's over. You don't do other stuff to make it work for you. It's a gift. It's entirely a gift, and it's, uh, it's enough. When Jesus died, one of the last things he said was, it was finished. It is finished. Okay, there was an earthquake, and then there's this giant curtain. I mean, it's this huge thick curtain. It's more like a wall, right, that, that separates what's called the Holy of Holies in the temple from the rest of the people, okay? And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a protective curtain because God is back there in his holiness. And, and it was only visited one day on the most holy day, Yom Kippur, by one person, the most holy priest, the high priest. He would go in there, and he had to be from the right family, and he would have to give the right offering, and he'd have to get in there and get out as fast as he could because we could not endure the power of the holiness of God. And when Jesus died and he said it was finished, that curtain tore, listen, from the top down. God tore it. He said, it's done. You, you bet it's done, and it's complete, and you don't need to do anything else. Just receive the gift. Now, come in. Come into my presence. Drop the anchor right here, friends. If you trust in anything but God's merciful gift of a slaughtered lamb, Jesus the Christ, his death, if you're trusting in anything that, that plus something, or anything else, you're wrong. And you'll, and you'll never have confidence about God's love for you if you don't base it on what he's promised you in this action of meekness. God loves you. There is no other way. And third, there is a plan, and you're not going to understand it. There's a plan, and you're not going to understand it. Could I remind you that there are 353 prophecies leading up to that day of the crucifixion? Can I tell you again of the story where Jesus took 12 men, sober-minded men, grabbed them by the cheeks and said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be turned in to the Gentiles. I will be persecuted. I will be killed. I'll be resurrected. And they were like, got it, Jerusalem, and uh, turned over, and then beaten, and then killed. And then what's that last word? It's a long one, uh, resurrected. Got it. Four times, four times he tells these guys, that's what's going to happen. Guess what? Nobody gets it. Nobody gets it. Nobody can, nobody can understand the confounding power of meekness. Why are we studying this book together? I've told you two reasons. Who's the real Jesus? Firsthand, let's read Mark. Jesus is meek. Second thing we're reading is, what would it be like to follow him? Let's just get inside the skins of the people that were there, and we'll probably do exactly what they did. We're no smarter or dumber, but here's the thing. Nobody got it. So let's not look back at them and say, why didn't you know? Because no one could comprehend this level of being. His mother this, this godly woman, right, Mary, she didn't know it. She didn't see it coming. Let me put it another way. Do you remember the story 
Jesus at Golgotha, do you remember the story where a guy's running around going, hey, wait, 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 that's okay. It's all going to be all better in about a couple days. It's going to be awesome. He told us, yeah, he's just going to raise again in a few days. It's no big deal. I'm setting up a lawn chair. This is actually not all that bad news. No, there's no story of that. Not one person could comprehend how this would end. So we're left watching this final scene with our hopes and our dreams and our purpose for life dying. And this is God winning. And so if we couldn't understand what Jesus was up to then, I don't think it's a good idea for us to try to interpret maybe some of the difficult things we're into right now. In other words, the anchor is this. Drop the anchor here. Resolve not to try to resolve. When chaos hits you, when tragedy, when injustice, when evil, when evil comes your way, you will not figure it out, but better, you will not try to figure it out. You need hindsight for that, and sometimes hindsight is 10,000 years removed. But here's what you can do. Instead of trying to rationalize and figure this out, and some of you guys are super smart. You're, the more smart you are, the more you're going to put into it. Don't. Here's what you can do. This is the will of God, that God will use that, to change you. You can do this. You can say, I can't resolve this. I can't make sense of this, but I can do this. It can make me more tender, more courageous. It can make me more loving. It can make me stronger. That you can do. But the bigger emotion here is relax. Just relax. There's a plan, and you're not going to know it. So let's not like get our little goldfish brains going when it's way beyond our understanding, let's enjoy. Here's the point. Let's enjoy this moment of suffering, of evil, of injustice, and drink it in for what it could do for us. These three anchors can change your life. Plant them all down. God loves you. There is no other way, and it was complete. And you can't know God's plan, but you can know what he's doing in your life. These three things. These are convictions for life. This is the difference between life and death. And friends, you set these anchors when the calms are, when the seas are calm. That's the best time because you can't negotiate these anchors in a storm. Okay? These are things that we reason out. They're not wishful thinking. These are proven facts. They're not sentimental hopes. These are true things, and we know they're true. And the only way we would know that they're true is that God sent his only son to become meek like a lamb and be slaughtered so that we might have an enjoyable relationship in the presence of the most holy God. That's what these 20 hours are all about. Today, we're going to end with a prayer. I'm going to ask each one of you to kind of, I guess, negotiate with God. What anchor do you need to drop? What's the first anchor you need to drop? Or maybe add some weight to or pull the chains tighter on so that you might live a life that glorifies God because of who he is and what you believe about him. All right, let's pray that. Lord, I lift up uh, there's members of, of, of our congregation that they, they have so much shame and they're defined by their shame. They say, I am, I, I'm a shameful person. I do shameful things. And, and, and God, I'd ask that you would have them set an anchor deep in the depth of your love, that they are not shamed, they are loved. They are loved by the almighty God that you would love them so much that you would send your only son. It was worthy in your heart to send your son to pay for their sins. God, I'd ask that they would have a conviction, not a hope, a conviction of that fact. And that fact would be laid 
down right here and right now and not negotiate it again. You couldn't love us more. You couldn't love us less. There's people here, Lord, I know, I know they try to do good so that you'll like them. They try to do good so that they'll be saved. They try to do good so they'll have eternity. Lord, I'd ask, Lord, that you would cause them to drop an anchor and repent of that foolishness. That if your death, your excruciating death was not enough, what more could you do to pay for all of their sins? I'd ask that you would give them confidence in their salvation. That they, they know they'll spend eternity with you, not because of what they do, but because of what you've done. That their hope would be built on nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I know there's people here that are in difficult situations, and I know everyone here will have difficulty. God, I'd ask that you would help us understand that you're not understandable. That we're mortals and we're finite and you're infinite and you're the God's spirit. And I'd ask, Lord, that we would enjoy that. That we would be at peace with what we know to be true and not try to figure out your ways. Lord, I'd ask that you would give us the stability, these three anchors of life, that we might live a life in reflection of who you are and how you've defined us. We look at you as the lamb, the lamb of God who sent to take away the sins of the world. We look at you in the contrast of the line of Judah who will come to rule and to judge. We love that paradox in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.